From the American School Counselor Association, this is I Hear You Say, a podcast for school counselors and other leaders in education. I'm Jen Walsh, Director of Education and Training here at ASCA. Pernicious occurrences like a global health pandemic and social unrest tied to structural racism, inequality, inequity, and injustice have illustrated how essential schools can be for a great number of people, given that schools are intended to provide learning and social opportunities to youth, serve as a resource for career exploration and development, and impart appropriate social and mental health care. These essential ingredients to schools are supported by a variety of educational professionals, especially school counselors, who act as both educators and counselors in the delivery of services pertaining to student learning, social-emotional growth, and career development. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ian Levy and Dr. Matthew Limberger Trulove. Dr. Levy is an assistant professor of school counseling at Manhattan College, New York City native, and former high school counselor. His research explores preparing school counselors to use hip-hop-based interventions to support youth development. Most notably, Dr. Levy piloted the development, implementation, and evaluation of a hip-hop-based counseling framework, which has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, and published in a variety of reputable academic journals. Dr. Matthew Limberger Trulove is a professor of counselor education at the University of North Texas. He is the current editor of the Journaling of Counseling and Development, the immediate past editor of the Journal of Humanistic Counseling, and the senior associate editor of the Journal of Child and Adolescent Counseling. Dr. Limberger Trulove is interested in culturally responsive, evidence-based school counseling practices and outcomes and the development and validation of the advocating student within environment approach, which is one of only a few empirically supported theoretical approaches tailored specifically for school counseling. Welcome Dr. Levy and Dr. Limberger True Love. I hear you say that the combined identity as educator counselor can affect roles and responsibilities associated with school counseling. Yeah, I think this is a great place to start, uh, Jen, and thank you so much for having us both on to talk about this special issue. Matthew and I had a lot of discussions about this sort of like non-dual identity that we'll get into a lot. And um, this, I guess like they sort of theoretically stem from the understanding that the school counselor is always pulling from both their educator and counselor identity. And oftentimes they might be led to believe that they're pulling from one or the other. Um, And we wanted to be very clear in this entire special issue in our intro specifically in saying that they're always both. And this is actually something that we believe very strongly sets the school counselor apart from any other sort of ancillary mental health professional. And I say that to say, like, if you think about something like collaboration with like families or or communities, right, something that is inherently wedded to the school counselor's role, that in and of itself is an educational task, right? It is a task that is connected to schools as ecosystems and our roles within schools. However, the way that the school counselor in comparison to other educators within the building engages with family and community is through the lens of a counselor. And that sets us apart from other educators, but also sets us apart from other counselors or mental health professionals. And so we really wanted to be clear of like, 
looking at school counseling as a standalone profession that is always educator and always counselor sort of in this combined way. Yeah, I'd pretty much echo the same point. There's something unique about the situatedness of a school counselor that that affects the, the disposition of their daily activities. And yet there are many occasions when they're kind of pulled into these identities and they're kind of compelled to oscillate between the two. And yet, even in that oscillation, if you really consider what a school counselor does and um, what's expected of them, that dual identity seems to, to kind of percolate to the top. But even when you think of like a, a classical counseling role, when you're counseling as a, as a school counselor, it's always tethered to the educational mission of the school or the fact that, that this is a student who has come from a classroom, will be interfacing with with peer students and, and a teacher in the very near future after a formal counseling session with the school counselor. And so therefore there always has to be this kind of immediate relevance. So it changes not just what the school counselor does, and it certainly does that as well, but it also changes like the, the topic of the conversation. It influences the, the types of uh, counseling behaviors that would be performed. And so it just became quite apparent that these really helpful heuristics that we had used to, to inform our identity weren't sufficient as discrete from each other. And instead, what we suggested was is that this educator counselor dual identity is really informed by this deep situatedness. We know that the ASCA national model contains a series of strategies and activities that operationalize the direct and indirect services generally provided by school counselors, such as appraisal and advising, collaboration, consultation, counseling, instruction, leadership and advocacy, and referrals. All of these strategies and activities contribute to the school climate and outcomes, but without a coherent frame for how these strategies and activities pertain to a unified school counselor identity, confusion about the utility of school counseling both within and outside of the pr- profession can happen. Absolutely. And there's a, the tons of directions that one could go in, in sort of thinking about this. And on my mind right now is, is how I came into the profession, right? So, you know, I went to a master's program where many of my professors uh, who were counselor educators were not school counselor educators. So they either were like heavily clinical and like they were practicing like LMHCs in in some case, but in other cases, they were like counseling psychologists and my program like existed as sort of a master's like feeder into a doctoral program in counseling psychology. And why is this relevant? Well, this is relevant because as a master's student, I was getting trained very well with regards to my clinical skills. But I learned to see myself as somebody who then would enter a school environment, not as an educator, but as solely a counselor. And then I'm now compelled to to cling to that identity, right? I'm confused when I'm asked to not have a manageable, you know, a caseload that is conducive to long-term ongoing counseling. I'm not able to really sort of stay within my office and do a lot of work within that space or, or, or run groups maybe as often as I would like to, right? And I'm not saying that we should not be able to run groups or things like this, but what I am saying is that I think the nature of how I even entered the profession forced me to privilege my counselor identity over that of an educator. And only over time, 
And then I learn about my educator identity. But then the flip side is also true when we're almost forcing the school counselor to become too much of an educator, where then they're divorced from their counseling identity. We even see this upon post-graduation. In one of our articles in the special issue um, that was led by Emily Goodman-Scott and, and some of her colleagues, they had talked with district-level school counseling supervisors. And you see that dichotomous way of looking at identity as educator or counselor really coming out in their the qualitative themes that they ascertained. And you see school counselors oftentimes get really disenchanted because they're having to to perform that constant oscillation based upon circumstance or based upon external pressure of an administrator, whether it be a, a principal or the demand of a particular circumstance. And there is something useful, I think, to those identities as discrete when thinking about them as entities. But really, that's kind of the, the, the outer edge of, of their usefulness because when you're a school counselor, it, it really affects each and every behavior, it affects how we conceptualize our work, it affects the, the, the nature of our conversations, it affects how we look at ourselves in terms of what outcomes to anticipate. And, you know, reifying one identity or another as an absolute um, really delimits all of those various things that we know school counselors do on a daily basis. Also, um, it's not just a trivial issue. You know, there are so many incredible things that are going on now, and yet how a school counselor operates in a school, we think that this framework has like consistent pertinence. This conversation has been going on for, for a long time, but it's still incredibly pertinent in terms of training, but then also in terms of the practice behaviors expected of school counselors. How might reshaping the narrative to suggest that school counselors and educators who are oriented by, by counseling have the potential to solve much of the role ambiguity that has existed in the profession? Well, yeah, sort of building on, on what Matthew was just suggesting, what is the role of the school counselor when it comes to something like mental health, right? Like we always love to rightfully so, right, suggests like the school counselor, you know, is, is a mental health professional, and I'm in complete agreement with that. But I think that the way that as educators and counselors, uh, we are different than other mental health professionals is in the way that we address mental health. And that is, it is always bound to being preventative, being developmental, and not being reactive, right. And, and I think that a lot of the role ambiguity for me and, and Matthew and I have discussed this quite a bit comes from this like thought that in order to engage in, in mental health work, you have to be responding to the emergence of a concern um, and that it's not this ongoing, right? It's oftentimes like pathologized. It's very like deficit oriented. It's very like even therapy as a construct, right, is, is, is inherently reactive. And so how do we think about our work as developmental, which we know, right, like ASK has done a great job at, at really detailing that we are inherently a developmental professional. But that, I think, is what helps with our role ambiguity, right? As a school counselor and as, as we engage in these educational tasks through counseling, we're, we're naturally bound to development and bound to prevention. And we are, in that way, part of creating mental health systems and positive mental health systems, but in a very different way, 
than another professional in the building, like a social worker or a school psychologist or a licensed mental health counselor might be, because we are trained to engage in more of a developmental way, in a more sort of education bound and situated way. Yeah, I kind of want to press on that same point as even prior to, to you framing it that way. I was thinking, you know, I think many school counselors, and in many cases, rightly, are concerned that our, our kindred mental health providers are infiltrating schools and that that will displace the school counselor. And while I, I think that, you know, we certainly have to heed any caution that, that that might occur and that school counselors are placed kind of erroneously in these um, quasi-administrative positions. I think if we really focus on that identity, the counselor identity within that, that, that non-dual scheme, it clearly illustrates that school counselors consistently focus on those things that make us uniquely counseling, right? And that is, again, that development, prevention, and, and wellness. And so you know, what does that look like, you know, kind of brass tacks when a school counselor is in a school? Well, you know, we're doing, we're helping build capacities in students when we're performing direct services, rather than just responding to um, this particular episode um, that has occurred in their lives. Now, that's not to suggest that we can't be responsive when those things occur, but it's always going to be to the advantage of the, the, the young person and also the counselor that if they have already um, worked on those resilience or those life skills in advance, and this is that kind of preventative part in, in the scheme of their ongoing development, that any responsive work is only going to be amplified and made better and more, more, more effectual. Um, in a similar way, you know, when there are some of these confusions that, that other players in the, the school, like teachers or administrators might have, this helps minimize that ambiguity because we know that the school counselor is really satisfying a mental health need that is not satisfied really in any other place. And so this actually even in some ways transcends um, the, the single school unit. I mean, this, I think, helps minimize some of the ambiguity that we've endured as a profession over many, many decades, um, even beyond just a single school or single district or even single state, because um, what we know from the literature is that preventative-based work generally has is more effective, and yet it's really hard to capture that as empirically substantiated because you're looking at longitudinal effects. And even if there are effects, um, the best outcomes you can anticipate is that you don't see disturbances, like that that where the kid was, you know, that kind of pristine internal capacity um, doesn't get knocked off course because of the the various stressors or various impediments in their lives and so so when you're looking at development you know you're you're really anticipating that there's that kind of natural progression over the course of time and so you're not necessarily going to see the value of that but then if school counselors occupy this role as a as a unified identity it really not only benefits that perceived ambiguity of what exactly is a school counselor do it then suggests that there is a, a mental health provider, an educator um, who um, provides these kind of wraparound services that otherwise won't be met because either as a society we haven't necessarily valued them or we haven't found a way to formalize them. So when you talk about preventative work, are we really talking about like that tier one level? 
that's a great question. So I think primarily yes, um, like the, the short answer. But I also think that you know we get a bit short-sighted in that way because even those kind of spontaneous things that aren't so formal tend to be preventative. So for example, if you've cultivated a strong relationship and what we know from the literature is that a strong relationship, and that's not just, you know, does the person who you're working with like you, but it's things such as the installation of hope, is it culturally responsive, so on and so forth, that those common factors is all predicated on this idea of a quality relationship. You can work with a kid spontaneously, like you can give a high five to a kid who has profound anxiety, whether that's unbeknownst to you, that activity, that brief moment actually potentially prevents, or at least it, it's beneficial in generative ways, well beyond just what they might be coming to, to talk about as a specific case. So, so yes, it certainly is primarily those formal things that school counselors do that help build up and work across classes and work across you know different uh, topical areas. But I also think it's preventative in spirit as, a, as much as it is in activity. You also mentioned that sometimes it's hard to kind of quantify this type of work. To me, when you say that, that makes me think of just the model and how that could be helpful in doing that. When I describe that, it's hard to quantify, but in terms of the work as a school counselor, it's very practical and I wouldn't want anyone to be disenchanted by by the difficulties. And I think the national model does a great job of, of giving a number of resources and specific recommendations of how one might do this. Where it becomes challenging is showing causation, right? Um, from a clearly scientific perspective. But there are ways to do this. I think from a practical perspective, you can show as a school counselor development by tracking progress with students in a variety of ways. Uh, I think that the Ask of Mindsets and Behaviors is a great place for many school counselors to start. And there's very effective ways looking at like Castle, for example, using some of their um, assessment instruments and you can track on student growth over long periods of time and compare that to either students who have not had formal exposure to, to the types of deliveries that, that, that school counselors are doing in schools, or even just as comparison to, to like national norms and those types of things. Could reshaping the narrative sharpen practice and contribute to greater student and school-wide outcomes? You know, we, we draw from a great variety of professions and it's been very helpful for school counselors. But we as school counselors, there's just unique ways in which we are challenged in the school. Um, and so therefore I think our frameworks have to fit what we do as school counselors very specifically. You know, looking at things such as depressive episodes, like we know students can can feel melancholy and experience like the typical and sometimes atypical doldrums, and that affects in-schooling behaviors and, and, and learning outcomes. But that's not always the language, like our, our peer educators don't always use that same nomenclature. They're not always trained in the same ways. And so is it really helpful? And so having frameworks that um, is conversant both within what we know is useful as, as counselors, but then also something that's relatable to the people who are with these students many hours out of the day um, can also be helpful. And so, you know, in terms of how a educator counselor identity can, can affect practice, that can help us really identify what practices can influence things. So like going back to the, uh, 
fiasco mindsets and behaviors as a great example. Like we know that students' regulatory capacities, like how they experience, you know, themselves and themselves in relationship to external stimuli and how they regulate their emotion in response to those affects not only their social development, but it, it also affects learning outcomes. And so a school counselor who is informed by this non-dual identity would tailor interventions to say, if I work in, you know, ameliorating the, the classroom environment by doing consultation with a teacher, and if I simultaneously help um, the, the, the young person develop some type of response to stressful situations, the reflexivity between those interventions, because of, as informed by my, my non-dual identity, is more likely going to contribute to, to positive learning outcomes. It's going to more likely contribute to a hospitable in feelings of connection between the student and the adult. And that's kind of what we've shown. And so, yeah, so Ian's pointing to one particular article that we included in the, the, the special issue, and, and we performed an intervention using combined social emotional learning and, and mindfulness-based interventions with children in an economically depressed uh, environment and, um, and, and adapted those interventions so that it fit with the context of what a school counselor does. And so fewer sessions than what was typically delivered in other settings and um, catered to classroom settings and then had a complimentary consultation training sessions with the teacher so that there could be reflective experiences. So anything that the students were exposed to, the teacher could then help reinforce and, and celebrate when it was germane to, to the students in the classroom outside of the counseling sessions. And what we found was, is that not only did that improve a number of things, it improved social curiosity, which other literatures have shown influences a great variety of student outcomes. Similarly, it felt improved feelings of connectedness to the school that has similar associations. And then um, what are called executive functions, and that is um, those kind of neurophenomenological experiences of self-regulation. So basically how we make purposeful decisions and regulate ourselves so that we can get back into making purposeful decisions when we're um, sometimes confronted by challenging circumstances. And so we saw um, significant improvements in each of those areas based upon a five session um, classroom guidance unit with the students and then five sessions with the, the consultation with the teachers. But then we also saw that each of those um, also predicted outcomes on a standardized academic test. And so uh, those students in our treatment groups not only improved on these more proximal psychological and social skills, they also improved in their learning content. And yet we didn't talk about mathematics. We didn't talk about science. We didn't talk about social studies. And yet the greatest improvements, in fact, our effect sizes were greater in those areas than they were even on the things that, that are talked about very explicitly in the Ask of Mindsets and Behaviors. And so, so I think it nicely illustrates that there are things that we can do that are really germane to our identity as counselors and yet have incredible pertinence to an educational setting. Yeah, Matthew, and I think in that in that one intervention, right, you see multiple like school counseling tasks sort of converging through through counseling, right? And so there, there's consultation, there's instruction, there's um, attention to sort of the thoughtfulness around how do you take like a group counseling curriculum and and develop it for instruction 
for classroom instruction. These are all things that we know that counselors, that school counselors have to do that are distinct from others. But there, it's not one, which I think is also important here, right? And something that we tried to make clear is like, if I'm consulting, I'm not only consulting, right? Um, they're all, all of the roles inform the other. And, and oftentimes, not only am I educator and counselor, but I, I can engage in multiple educational tasks towards the same end rooted in counseling. And I, I think as you were describing it, I heard multiple different tasks, right? That all had to happen to make sure that a singular intervention could unfold in, in a way that supported students' development. And I don't know how another professional other than a school counselor could do that in the school building. And I mean that as an educator, but also as, as other another mental health professional. I don't know how, right? Um, even if you think from like just the application to instruction requires pedagogical skills, right? But requires the ability to adopt or adapt rather um, a group curriculum to a more pedagogical setting. And, and who else has that other than the school counselor, right? So I loved that paper and, and really all of the papers in the issue because I think they detailed how while one task might be central, in this case, like in classroom instruction, other tasks like consultation, like attention to group work um, and counseling, and then rooted in development and prevention and wellness, like all of that came sort of to the fore. Yeah, and it would be exhausting. I mean, if you think about it, just from a you know, day-to-day what a school counselor endures, it would be exhausting to to not have a cohesive, and when we say things like this, that it's non-dual or grounded, we're not suggesting that like we over-essentialize what a school counselor does, but it would be exhausting to not have a coherent framework that in some ways tethers together all these things that we know school counselors do. Because, you know, in that example, yeah, you had to do work related to appraisal. We had to do work related to, you know, the showing the efficacy of it is something parallel to what a school counselor does when they have to show, you know, the, the ways in which they're utilizing evidence-based practice in choosing an intervention, but then also on the back end that they evaluated the efficacy of it. And having a coherent frame to say, well, how do all of these things cohere with each other? But then also, how do they fit within my disposition as a counselor who's interested in prevention, wellness, and development, and social justice, but then also are, are situated in the school so that a teacher finds them valuable. So they'll, they'll more likely want me to come into their classrooms or perform small group counseling or deliver consultation with them or perform advocacy work um, with the administrators because there's that you know very clear pertinence. And it would be exhausting, I think. And in fact, I, I know for many of my own kind of anecdotal conversations with counselors, they feel that sense of exhaustion. And, you know, while this is no panacea by any means, we believe that that having a framework that is coherent in this way um, can make us more efficient as a profession. So even maybe more important than, than minimizing the role ambiguity, making more efficient and more effective what a school counselor does, because it, we can be really, really good at at this identity, and it has pertinence to all these various manifestations that we know a school counselor is challenged to do on a daily basis. Based on what we have talked about already, I think the interrelatedness between educator and counselor is pretty evident uh, and how all practices must be relevant to that school environment. But what about the focus on development, justice, prevention, and wellness? So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about 
the the counselor identity and how this particularly can inform practice, especially how it pertains to to choice of intervention. And Jen, you had rightly brought up like, does this is this indicative of like tier one services? But it, I think it also can inform our work at the systems level, um, especially on the heels of COVID and the, the awareness of the long-standing racial injustices that many students have endured. That having this non-dual identity compels a counselor like you unavoidably cannot look at the school as a as an ecosystem as a total unit and again there's many different facets within that that total ecosystem that have different ways of response that, that are required of a school counselor and yet having this coherent frame compels the counselor to say if i choose to do this this is the implications that it might have on students as they exist in the total school culture you know we're not seen here's the students who are struggling academically let me work with them you know kind of as a isolate from the students who are also struggling with grief instead we are looking okay how do all of these differing circumstances really affect the total school climate and how do we advocate with differing stakeholders so that we can have the greatest investment and the greatest yield in, in our efforts without overwhelming ourselves. Yeah, and I think when we consider a lot of the incredible work that's being done right now by like the the, the school counseling um, collective on like anti-racist approaches, is this ability of the school counselor to be really thoughtful about disaggregating data, understanding which in, in what ways different school policies and practices and procedures disproportionately marginalize specific groups of students, and in a lot of cases, mostly Black and Latinx students, and therefore, how can those policies be either gotten rid of, or how can new policies be sort of created, right, um, that create an equitable playing field, an equitable opportunity and access within schools, and all of that is rooted in prevention and social justice and wellness, right? If we're not creating environments where youth can come to school and have access and feel physically even within the building um, able to actualize right and become their full selves and, and understand all of who they are then we're not doing what we should be doing as school counselors right we're not actually upholding the, what counseling is which is this again this development this justice this prevention this wellness and so i think um when you think about right now like matthew was saying on the heels of of covid and amidst um many movements that are necessary to celebrate and center black lives and the mattering of black lives and joy like the school counselor is such a crucial person to support that from a developmental and, and like sort of ecosystem perspective yeah i mean really our hope for this special issue is you know it, it's it's not to promulgate that there's a specific way to do school counseling, but but we are suggesting that, that school counselors, that there is that there is a framework that we can have as kind of a, a given, like a, um, a prior, that as we approach all these many different challenges that, that exist at the school level, at the student level, at the, the systems level, independent of the school, that if there is a certain framework that, that we come into these as a as, a, as an assumed predisposition of counselors, then again, we can be more efficient and more effective in our work. And we're not 
so reactive and responsive. And even in those situations where they're classically seen as, as responsive roles or roles that you know we have been compelled to, to occupy because maybe an administrator or because there's just a dearth of resources in our school district, that it can change the complexion because of those prior assumptions. So like, not that I would suggest that, that you know, school counselors just, you know, embrace lunch duty or, you know, all the kind of things that are, you know, duties as assigned that, that, you know, take us away. But with this disposition, it can change how you do those things. We can apprehend every new opportunity in a different way so that if a school, if we know that inevitably kids are going to go to lunch and there's going to be things that, that, that don't go the way most adults would want them to go during the lunch period. Because of this disposition, it can affect the way the counselor approaches those, those, those duties and, you know, that it can be actually helpful. Like that, you know, wow, that rather, you know, I was expecting this adult to, to, to discipline me in, in a certain way. And, um, but instead really helped me figure out how to do this differently, like was helpful and encouraging because of that, that, that unique situatedness as a, as an educator. So, you know, things have to occur with a certain, um, expected mores in a school, but, but because of that counselor orientation, they did this in a, you know, they prevented it to escalate in a, in a way that would cause more problems for the kid. Um, they helped it become developmental so that, you know, the kid still is going to be seen as cool and, you know, not just, you know, compliant to what all the adults want, but that they can still express themselves uh, in a way that, you know, is appropriate uh, within a school context, but then also appropriate within a context of peers. And I think only a counselor can do that, but only a counselor can do that if that school counselor um, has this awareness that is non-dualistic between, again, their situatedness as an educator in a school and their orientation as a counselor who is focused on prevention, development, wellness, and, and justice at the system. And Matthew, level. just quickly to, to add to that too, like, you know, I think this, this touches on something that we've discussed that might be, um, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but like, you know, we, we talk about how we, we should not do certain things as a school counselor, right? Like lunch duty is often is sort of thrown into there. Um, and I think rightfully so in some instances, but as I think back on what's well, not that long ago that I was practicing as school counselor, but a couple a few years ago, um, I, I did some of my best work while I was assigned lunch duty. Um, I, 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 I helped to collaborate with different like dean and aid staff that were working within that space to have like students had created playlists like of songs that they liked that made them feel comfortable and at home within the space so we had created like a physical environment that was inviting for students um, it was oftentimes very like game centered in the space and, and that was important because i would have a lot of students who i'd be working on like i'd be running a small group let's say with some students around like the development of specific social skills and then we'd be able to say okay well today we're going to practice those social skills i know you you know to a student i know you've been working on kind of trying to 
have have more conversations with some peers and you're and it's been really hard for you to sort of develop like friend, friend groups and, and a social support system within the school so like i'm going to be up in the lunchroom with you and like let's set you up to like play some dominoes in the corner because i know that that's going down during lunch and like we'll set it up like i'll go play like there were ways that i could support students in in building on things that we were doing in group work within that space and, and i say that to say when we look at a lot of the times our our frustration with our role is often like that's not what i do and yes but if the school is going to make me do that then can't i do that role and pull from everything that i know to to make it this incredible space and if i do that can i then collect data around that right can i then go back to my principal and say hey look at what I'm doing when you just throw me a little bit of time during lunch. Like imagine what I could do if I had more time to push into classrooms to do instruction, if I had more time to run some groups, like imagine what else I could do. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I think all of that, right, is, um, is again, like bound to what we've sort of tried to push in, in this issue with regards to like all of that is developmental, right? Like that doesn't look like you see a counselor with, with some youth around a table with dominoes, right? The, the, the naked eye might say that has nothing to do with counseling in the school counselor's role, but in fact, it could actually be all of what we do. As you were talking, it reminded me of, um, of a, kind of an anecdote from my days as a high school counselor and, you know, the one that came to mind was, you know, like what's the most inappropriate duty oftentimes assigned to counselors and it's proctoring a standardized high stakes test. And my first year as a counselor, I, I remember there was a, a student who, when we were handing out the test and I walked into the room and they were already in there, they're sitting there, you know, she looked like she was going to regurgitate. And as I handed her her test, she said, something along the lines of like, thank you. I'm so glad it was you who handed me this. I feel so much better. I feel like I'm okay to take in this. And this was a, a girl who was in one of, I can't recall if it was a classroom guidance activities using the student success skills program or a small group um, that, that, that I was been performing as a school counselor, but, but either of which were very much pertinent to, again, this kind of relatedness between social emotional development and, and the student as a learner. You know, that moment, it certainly wasn't me who did this, but it exemplified um, that she was able to be present. She was able to be um, focused and, and, and what she was able to do rather than just completely be mired and preoccupied by, by her test-taking anxieties. And again, all that was precipitated on the work that I had done in direct services as a counselor, but it was reinforced by this duty that would have otherwise something that I would have abhorred doing. And so I saw the at least episodic value in that. And I think that that's true for many counselors. Like we, and, and you put this so wisely, that then what happens is, is we feel so disenchanted and with anything we're like, oh, well, you know, if my principal or my administrator or my school district doesn't support me doing direct services, then um, I can only take so much rejection. I'm just going to fall online and be compliant with the ways in which I'm being demanded to do this because my career vitality is, is being pushed in this way. But instead, if we have this reframe, if this, if this framework that we're suggesting can be a slight change of perspective, it affects the behavior, the ways that we do the things that we do, whether they are in a classroom, 
as consistent with the national model, but then it also helps, I think, recalibrate those things that 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 are kind of spontaneous or potentially inappropriate so that they can actually become more educational and they can become more counseling. And so therefore, de facto, this non-dual educator counselor praxis. So how can a non-dual educator counselor identity be embodied in the various roles and responsibilities described in the ASCA national model, such as instruction, counseling, appraisal and advising, consultation, collaboration, and referrals? Each of these sort of components or responsibilities of of the, the national model are detailed in our special issue in each of the respective articles, right? So like we have incredible art, um, authors that, that are featured throughout, and they each article kind of addresses each responsibility in a, in a way that we were really proud of and actually stemmed from the creation of, of this nice visual that, Matthew, maybe you can kind of break down for us. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do it briefly. I mean, it, it certainly, I think, is something, there's a reason why it's in pictorial form. It wasn't just the convenience of it being a, a journal article in two dimensions, but we thought about it almost as like a, a wheel um, because wheel has two contact points for it to move forward, which very much is in the spirit of, of development. It's this kind of ongoing movement. And so at the center is this, is like the fulcrum of a wheel where there's that educator, that situatedness as an educator, but that wheel can't move if it doesn't have that identity as a counselor. And so the educator, you see all these various different in the ways it manifests that, that, that Ian rightly mentioned that, that really came from the national model. And so when we recruited authors and, and, and looked for the, the composition of the special issue, it was how can we illustrate this non-dual identity as it pertains to, to referrals, as it pertains to collaboration? So you can see this kind of immediate relationship to the educational um, milieu of a school, but then you see there's something distinct because of the counselor contribution. And so then underneath of the, those various, you know, manifest like that, if, again, if this is a wheel, like spokes of the wheel, the, the foundation, the grounding being the, the identity as a counselor and, you know, that fulcrum pushing off of prevention, development, wellness, and social justice, really kind of the axioms of counseling. And so it's this idea that when you do any one of these roles, there is value for a school counselor to think of these as discrete, that, that this is a circumstance where I might need to make a decision. What I'm going to do is focus on consultation, or I'm going to be instructing, or this is a la- an advocacy activity. But then it gets pulled back into this total scheme where, okay, how does that current activity really get informed by my total non-dual identity. So if I am advocating um, or doing something leadership, that it pertains to the total school ecosystem, that it it pertains to doing it in such a way that it is not just concerned with responding, but then helping the system develop over time or helping young people develop over time. And so, you know, we try to be very intentional to to tie it directly to the ASCA national model so it was familiar nomenclature and familiar practices with school counselors but really kind of illustrate that that there's a a more coherent and and again efficient framework that can make what could otherwise seem just an untenable and incredibly 
exhaustive amount of activities that any activity you do is going to have relevance to all of those other things that a school counselor does. All of our roles, while they might seem like a lot, or, or again, like, you know, um, like Matthew was just saying, like they might seem to sort of perhaps interfere with each other or feel overwhelming or feel like nobody knows what we do. In fact, our ability to sort of navigate between all of them while having this really, really strong grounding as, as counselors makes us distinct and makes us, in my opinion, like the profession, right? Uh, the profession, particularly right now, uh, that is necessary to kind of create the changes in education that we need. Thank you so much to Matthew and Ian for joining us today. Please remember to check out the Professional School Counseling Journal's special issue, Educator Counselor, a non-dual identity for school counselors. We hope to have you back for our next episode, but until then, be sure to check out our website at schoolcounselor.org for school counselor resources. Also, we'd love to engage with you on all of our social media platforms. Find us on Facebook at the American School Counselor Association, Twitter at Aska Tweets, and Instagram at We Are Aska. Thanks to you all for listening and hear from you soon. I'm Jen Walsh, and this has been I Hear You Say, the podcast from the American School Counselor Association.